Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. This is episode number 201. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Silverstein. Dr. Silverstein is the president of Silverstein Eye Centers in Kansas City. And we connected with Dr. Silverstein initially through uh, the company Diopsis. Diopsis is celebrating its 20th anniversary, its 20th year in business. So uh, we wanted to talk to someone who's, uh, who's familiar with Diopsis's uh, offerings and uh, is a, uh, a consistent user of its many tests, including light-induced visual response. Dr. Silverstein gave a talk at AAO uh, on this topic at the Diopsis booth. So we, uh, we connected with Dr. Silverstein to talk a bit about that, but of course also got into his, uh, his career and his, uh, his work in local politics. He was actually a police commissioner in his local community, also a classical pianist, and uh, had the opportunity to spend some time backstage with Kiss. So it was a, it was a great conversation. Always interested in hearing how folks find their way into ophthalmology and uh, Dr. Silverstein was generous with his time. So I know you'll enjoy this conversation. Before I let you go, however, I do want to remind you that uh, OIS at SECO is happening on February 21st in New Orleans. This is our first event that uh, will focus exclusively uh, or primarily at least on the uh, optometry industry. Uh, of course, there's a lot of overlap between the two. The ophthalmology and optometry are becoming increasingly uh, reliant upon one another. So uh, this is a natural transition for OIS. We're excited about this first program. We had some smaller dinners last year, but this is our first full-blown OIS. So it's OIS at SECO. Go to OIS.net to register. Again, it's happening on February 21st in New Orleans. Now let's get into this conversation with Dr. Stephen Silverstein. Now, Dr. Stephen Silverstein, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. As we do with our uh, other uh, interviews with uh, ophthalmologists, I'd love to find out what... uh, what path you took into ophthalmology? How'd you, uh, how'd you get to where you are today? The funny answer to that question is that uh, when I was a medical student and having had very good vision uh, my whole life, I'd never even seen an eye doctor before until I got creamed in the eye by a racquetball and my eye filled up with blood. I had a total eight ball hythema. Ouch. And uh, during um, my follow-up appointments with the ophthalmologist I met uh, emergently, he seemed like such a happy guy, and I was intrigued by what he did, and he encouraged me to take rotation. Of course, the microsurgery and the lasers and the technology, uh, I was hooked. And so uh, that's what got me into ophthalmology. But um, ultimately, I trained at Tufts, doing the medical center in Boston, and then did my cornea fellowship at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. This was all between 1987 and 1991 in Kansas City. Um, ever since. This is my 28th year of practice as both a fellowship trained corneal specialist and comprehensive ophthalmologist. Wow. Well, I want to I cover one aspect for sure. You're the second physician, I think, in the last six weeks that has mentioned the, uh, the, the, the happy nature of ophthalmologists or the ophthalmologists this person met that drew them into the, into the specialty. 
why is that? Why do, why do you think ophthalmologists are such a darn happy bunch? I think, first of all, we are able to bring back vision that people have lost either naturally or as a result of trauma or disease. And uh, then also the luxury premium channel opportunities that people have, both from the standpoint of corneal-based refractive surgeries, as well as um, lenticular-based um, procedures, it may also give people the opportunity for vision that they've never had. Mm -hmm. And so with our five senses, most people would agree that vision is our most precious and the, what we depend upon most. And so it, it's something that patients take very seriously until you ask them to use their glaucoma drops, in which case, <laughs> no. Um, but um, I, I, I think that as a group of people, we, you know, we are very curious. Um, we love all the advances that are in our field, both uh, pharmacologically and surgically. And uh, it's, it's just such a fascinating, the visual system itself is is such a cool system. It, it, you, you never could get bored. You will always be a student of ophthalmology. It's fun. Um, it's, it's always changing and never stagnant. And usually most patient encounters are, are happy. That's great. Let's talk a bit about that pace of, of innovation since this is an innovation-oriented podcast. Uh, how has the, uh, the rate of innovation uh, changed over, the last, over your career the last 20-plus years? Uh, do you, are you seeing a lot more, I'm, I'm, I hope you're seeing a lot more new technologies over the last 10 than perhaps you did uh, over the previous uh, 15 or so? Absolutely. Uh, you really hit the nail on the head. When I lecture to lay public, I tell them that ophthalmology really is still in its toddlerhood. I mean, if you think about the advent of intraocular lens implants with Harry Ridley in about 40, 1949 or 50, and then the advent of intraocular microscopes, lens implants, microsutures, and viscoelastic. I mean, those changes are so relatively recent. Um, comparison to everything else we had before, it almost feels that prior to that time, we were still couching cataracts uh, like they did in the Egyptian days. Uh, to your point, the last decade has been just explosive with technology, both in terms of uh, procedural technology, but also, of course, in diagnostic technology, in terms of improvements with OCT and, and of course, all the opportunities with um digital angiography and wide field photography, as well as um, what we'll be talking about um, today with uh, ERG and VEP or uh, diagnostic electrophysiologic testing. But the opportunities in practice have just become extraordinary as far as giving us safer, faster, easier insight into helping diagnose patient pathology than anything we've had in the past so that we can put people through less traumatic or potentially dangerous procedures such as fluorescein angiography in exchange for CT, for example, in diagnosing edema. So, and, and the diopsis testing that, that we'll talk about in a, in a moment has revolutionized our ability to look at disease progression and also uh, in diagnosing disease uh, much earlier than we've been able to before with uh, conventional tests. So, in, in looking at your your background, I have to say you you are you may be the most interesting man in ophthalmology <laughs> based upon your your background. You are a state elected city councilman, a mayor pro tem, 
the police commissioner for the city of Lake Winnebago, Missouri. And, uh, and you also uh, have the naming rights for uh, the local arena, the, uh, the Silverstein Eye Center Arena, which uh, is the first time I've, I've seen that happen. So how, how do you get, let's talk a little bit about the politics of, of first. How, how do you have time to, to be involved in, uh, in your community? Like anything we do, no matter who you are or what field you're in, um, we choose to do the things with our time that we either have to do or the things that are going to um, bring us happiness. And for these extracurricular activities, whether it's my involvement with philanthropy and serving on different boards or the board of directors of the bank that I serve on, and most especially my 18 years in, in uh, city government, I cubbyhole these things as entertainment. These are all things very different than medicine and what I do today. And um, it's a fascinating contrast to healthcare, but also gives me the opportunity to use tools that you develop in healthcare or healthcare leadership to bring good in other venues. So it was easy to carve out that time because I really enjoyed opportunity to give back to a community I love and to really make demonstrable differences. I mean, things, for example, when I first moved to that city, and this is a large city, I mean, a city, uh, the same class city as like Independence, Missouri, or other you know large national cities, but our water system was not fluoridated. It, it just uh, blew my mind. So I went through all the due diligence with the Dental Association, American Academy of Pediatrics, the states, et cetera, and found that we could get all the uh, equipment for the system donated for free by the state, and it cost about $25 or $30 a month to fluoridate the entire city. You know, you hold public hearings and you make sure that people are uh, have their questions answered. But it's really wonderful to get things uh, moving for a community. I, I really built up our police department. I uh, was instrumental in, in building a new city hall. You know, these kind of things. From the standpoint of the marketing and the uh, philanthropic opportunity with the uh, Silverstein Eye Center's arena, I knew they were going to be breaking ground on this $80 million arena. Um, that's owned by the City of Independence. And I started working with them six years before we actually came to uh, an agreement for being the corporate partner with the uh, arena. And part of the things that were very important to me was to be able to use the arena for philanthropy. I have a, a, a suite for, and I can attend virtually anything that happens there, any concert, any sporting event. Uh, and I donate my suite a lot to different galas so they can put it in their auctions and raise money for the, their events or their, their programs. And uh, I can donate the entire arena a couple of times a year to any philanthropy of my choosing. What I really want to do is I'd love to put together an annual jazz and blues festival where the proceeds could be used to uh, benefit different charities on um, each year. So. And then, of course, you know, it's, it's fun to sometimes, you know, sit down with management and try to steer some of the national concerts that might come our way. It was super cool being backstage with Kiss. <laughs> patients ask me all the time because I have a patient, uh, a picture in the waiting room um, with uh, Kiss and, and me backstage. It was so funny. So you'd be surprised how many people are part of the uh, Kiss army. <laughs> and does the arena have a cool name? The Eye Center or something like that? Well, the whole arena is called the Silverstein Eye Center's Arena. But a nickname. Is there a cool nickname? You know, the people oh, call it the uh, Eye or something like that? Oh, um, you know, people have shortened it to uh, Silverstein Arena. Um, but in-house, in we call it just Sika, you know, just uh, just to uh, 
you know, just to keep it short. That certainly works. And finally, uh, I also saw you're a classical pianist. Is that, uh, have you, are you going to allow yourself to perform at the, at Sika someday? <laughs> the last time I performed publicly was for a charity event, you know, for uh, the Kansas City Free Health Clinic. And honest to God, I'd, I'd rather do uh, a corneal transplant, <laughs> reconstruction, uh, sutured lens implant in front of a thousand people than to play the piano. I'm so embarrassed to play in front of people. I play I play classical piano and hard rock drums. <laughs> the only thing I would have given up my dream for medicine would have been to be even a modestly successful rock drummer on the road. That I would have loved to have done. A lot of happy, happy people in rock and roll too, I suppose. <laughs> they may not live as long. But... <laughs> if you'd pardon this interruption, this is Tom again. I just want to let you know that we have published a lot of our content from OIS and AAO. It's up on YouTube. If you do a search for OIS colon ophthalmology, you'll find our OIS ophthalmology innovation and investment page. Please subscribe to that. You'll see many playlists, uh, presentations from uh, the companies that uh, were on stage. We're also uh, rolling out our company to watch, this year's class of companies to watch. We recorded uh, many great interviews at OIS at AAO the day after the, the meeting, actually. And we'll have those videos up as well. We're also sending a lot of this content out to you via social media. But if you want to uh, catch Emmett Cunningham's presentation, if you want to see the latest uh, company presentations from OIS, go to YouTube, type in OIS colon ophthalmology, and you'll find everything you need. Please subscribe to the page so you don't miss a thing. Now let's get back into this conversation with Dr. Stephen Silverstein. What is your work with Diopsis? Uh, what is your uh, relationship with them? I understand they're celebrating their their 20th uh 20th birthday, and, and you're making yourself available to sort of talk about the work you've done with them and the technologies that they're making available. Well, from the standpoint of your listeners, the first question I'd be asking is, what does a cornea slash uh, comprehensive ophthalmologist know about, and why is he suddenly the authority on electrophysiologic testing? Just so happens that in the 80s, when I was training in Boston at Tufts, we were very fortunate to have two of the world's authorities in electrophysiologic testing, um, Dr. Sam Sokol and Dr. Ann Moskowitz. And working with the two of them way back uh, decades ago um, gave me my first exposure um, to the power and the benefit of these tests for optic neuropathies, maculopathies, and um, organic brain disease. But of course, back then, the technology literally filled an entire room. So. After residency, that was the end of the electrophysiologic diagnostic testing until uh, Diopsis uh, came on the scene and produced technology that was not only ergonomic and logistically feasible for practice, but also something that was extremely user-friendly for uh, from the standpoint of the uh, doctor report and the ability to use that information to make bona fide medical decisions for the patient, but also very easy for the patient and very easy for the staff to learn. Really no learning curve whatsoever for the staff. Um, once they're shown how to apply the sensors, it, it could not be uh, easier. It takes just a matter of moments. Um, it's very comfortable for the patients compared to what was um, used many years ago. Um, the types of sensors were 
uncomfortable and actually unsafe because uh, some of them were literally in contact with the cornea. The technology has changed dramatically. The ability to um, produce a report takes moments to set the patient up, takes moments. It's very easy to schedule in the template of a, of a, of a day. And the reporting has been made so streamlined and helpful, just like OCT reporting, et cetera, that at a glance, doctors can know whether or not a disease process is starting to take shape, uh, whether a disease process is stable or progressive. So those are the things that got me into using the technology. And I was a, a, a user and a student of the technology here in clinic for several years before I became expert enough to you know, uh, lecture to colleagues and be able to answer some of the questions about such seemingly out-of-our-realm technology. That's interesting. So is that largely what the uh, discussion at, at AAO will or did, given upon the timing of this podcast, focus on? It will talk about the technology, what it looks like, how it, how it, it is um, uh, set up in your clinic. Doctors frequently ask questions about how you incorporate another test in the day so that you don't back up clinic. And to answer that question now, um, we schedule it just like a visual field or an OCT. OCTs, of course, you can get on the fly, but if it's uh, something you're following for glaucoma, you set it up six months from now and you're doing the visual field, then those are on their own schedule. They have their own template um, so that it's not um, clogging the, the progress of, of your daily clinic. You're not going to send the person down the hall uh, for an ERG. And, and in fact, you wouldn't do that anyway because you do it before the patient is dilated. You don't do it after dilation. So we'll be talking about the technology. We'll be looking at the different tests and, and the format of, of how these tests are reported. What are the indications for the test? What are the disease processes that can be used to help um, doctors uh, decide which test they're going to use, when they're going to use it, and how they apply um, that information and that data to their daily patient care? And what is your relationship with uh, Diopsis? I'm a speaker. I, I, I'm a lecturer for them and a consultant. I see. So, uh, is this so how how much uh, does does this technology and these tests? How much does it play in, into into your practice? I mean, do you use it on what percentage of patients? I use it on virtually every glaucoma suspect and ocular hypertensive patient who's not on treatment. I use it for all patients on high risk medications such as. Plaquenil slash hydroxychloroquine. I use it on any patient who has no demonstrable anatomic reason for a diminished visual acuity, including some of our more gold standard diagnostic tests. Um, I use it for anybody with diabetic retinopathy, every diabetic patient, not patients who have no retinopathy, but just a history of diabetes, but people with frank retinopathy definitely are a key, key group of patients who benefit from this. And then also uh, other maculopathies um, that are not due to medication, but uh, maybe due to dystrophy or macular degenerative disease, where we're looking to determine stability or progression to disease and um, risk for edema, uh, for example, in the diabetic population. Um, because as of January 2018, CMS has given us the uh, uh, authority um, to order diagnostic testing and to treat diabetics before they develop um, frank diabetic macular edema. And this is huge for diabetic patients because 
once diabetic macular edema occurs, then you are really uh, in this cycle of chasing the disease. Sometimes you may make it better, sometimes it recurs, but being able to get to it um, early um, and be able to treat it even before diabetic macular edema is, is present on OCT or angiography. You can use uh, tests such as visual in, in do, or light-induced um, visual response to um, help determine, especially when you have a sequence of tests where you can look at a trend report and see what the wave magnitude and response time are doing. Um, and if it's decreasing, you can literally, um, and I've seen this uh, on a number of occasions, with the doctor's choice of medication, in this case, often anti-VEGF or steroids or both, individual steroids or both, can turn this process around. And by turn it around, I mean literally see improvement of the responses on this test with treatment. The other interesting thing about this treatment, for example, with macular degeneration patients, is to determine when treatment should stop. You know that today, anti-VEGF treatment for macular degeneration is given primarily on a treat and extend basis, but how do you know when you should stop treatment? Should you stop at three months? Should you stop at six months? Should you treat for a whole year? Well, one of the ways, especially with moderate or severe disease, one of the ways that you can, one of the tools that we have as a litmus is uh, light-induced visual response, because if the response is improving um, and you do another ERG the following month after treatment and it's improving, you treat again and, and you treat again and again as you normally would. But there reaches a point where the vision isn't improving and uh, even more subtly, the ERG isn't improving anymore and the sign um, that you have reached the maximum potential benefit of this treatment for now um, and then you follow them with ERGs and, and OCTs or whatever you, the doctor's other modalities of, of choice may be. And if they start to worsen again, you might say, uh-huh, before I see a decline in vision, it's time to treat again. So it can help us in concert with all the studies that have shown to date that treat and extend is the most common approach and the wisest approach in, in the majority of patients, not all, but in the majority of patients. And it's these diagnostic tests that we haven't had before that can really help be our guide for when to start and when to stop treatment. And how significant, uh, you, you mentioned it was very significant, the, the change to, by CMS. Is, that, is this an unusual um, uh, permission to have to be able to actually treat something before it appears or is this a case where it's just absolutely inevitable that it'll it'll mature into DME and, and that's why you're able to, to treat it? It's almost unheard of that CMS would be this forward thinking, or especially for diagnostic technology and for testing um, before the disease has occurred. And no, most people won't necessarily get diabetic macular edema until you hit a certain threshold. But First of all, what is that threshold in each individual patient? It may be different. What is, um, and since we only may see our patients who are at risk perhaps every three or four months or maybe every six months, we may have missed uh, a, a window because if we're just depending on our exam or our exam in OCT and don't see any CME or DME on, on this visit, we say come back in six months, 
then by that time, the disease may have already uh, shown itself or presented. Um, while maybe in that January visit, if they had had a light-induced uh, visual response um, ERG test and it showed um, diminished capacity, you might say, wait, I'm not going to treat you right now, but I'm going to bring you back in a month and see if this is repeatable or worse. And if it's worse, then we're going to treat it. Now you have a game plan based on concrete, objective data. And that's one of the other things that's remarkable about this technology, is that for the longest time, all we had was subjective data. We had, for glaucoma, for example, we had visual fields, which was patient subjective testing, and we had, you know, Donaldson disc stereoscopic disc photos, or we could take it uh, nerve fiber layer photos with um, a, a filtered light. But still, it was subjective based on our own read of the um, situation. But now we have objective testing for both. We have OCT, uh, spectral domain OCT. We have uh, electrophysiologic testing with ERG and VEP uh, through this diopsis um, technology. Um, so we have concrete objective testing to help guide our uh, treatment regimen earlier and better than we've ever had before. And as I mentioned, the fact that you can see improvement before you have cell death, uh, before you have cell death uh, occur and, and can rescue axonal cells or uh, macular function, uh, we can, we, these tests give us the opportunity to treat um, before permanent and structural damage is um, seen and unreversible. Well, I know you uh, you're up against your the end of your time, and uh, I'm really grateful that you uh, took a few minutes to uh, share your story with us today. I'm truly honored to speak with you, and I really hope that I have that privilege again. Thank you for making it so fine and easy. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's OIS podcast. Don't forget, OIS at Seco is happening on February 21st in New Orleans. Go to ois.net to register for that. It's going to be a great event. Also, our OIS at AAO content is out on YouTube. Go to YouTube, search OIS colon ophthalmology to find it most quickly. And subscribe to that page so you don't miss a thing. That's it. Tune in next week. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you at the OIS podcast. Mm-hmm.